Amen. And you can be seated. And as you're being seated, let us give our appreciation for our worship team this morning, Brian and John and Corey. Thank you. As Rick Strasner is out of town this morning, thank you guys uh, for jumping in here by yourselves. And, and you might not also know, okay, things aren't always as they seem. Uh, on Thursday, when I saw Brian, he was lying horizontal in the hospital, Frisco Medical City, uh, had just had back surgery on Wednesday. And today he's standing up here, uh, albeit with a brace, uh, leading worship. Thank you, Brian, and thank you to his family for nursing him over the last 72 hours. Thank you. And for John also, uh, Corey, I'm sure, has had her challenges, but John also uh, up here this morning, tired because yesterday uh, the McSorleys moved from Carrollton to Aubrey with the help of some of you who are also tired here this morning. Uh, Carrollton to Aubrey is a long hike, even if you don't have trailers of stuff. And so especially when you have trailers of stuff. So uh, thank you to them for leading us in worship this morning. And thank you uh, for the way you sang out there. Uh, appreciate that. If you're our guest this morning, thanks for being with us. Uh, glad that you're here. There's a connection card in front of you. We'd love to know that you're here, how we can pray for you, get you any information that you need out of towners. We're glad you're here as well. Uh, go ahead and open your Bibles with me to John chapter 4. John chapter 4 this morning, we are going to finish uh, that chapter as we continue our series this summertime called Encounters with Jesus. And uh, what we've been doing in this series is just looking uh, primarily, we took a little interlude last week, but we, we've been looking primarily at these one-on-one -on -one encounters that Jesus has with various people in the Gospel of John. Okay, our primary text is the Gospel of John, and so in this series so far, we've seen that uh, Jesus has encountered Nathaniel in chapter 1, this guy who is pretty skeptical, as some of us are. Um, skeptical about religion, skeptical that Jesus, the Messiah, would come from a place, you know, out in Podunk, Nazareth. And so Jesus engages this skeptic. And then we looked, we skipped over chapter two, but we went to chapter three where we saw this guy named Nicodemus, who was kind of at the upper echelon, the religious elite, a pastor or priest, if you will, um, member of the Sanhedrin in the first century. And Jesus really challenged Nicodemus. I said, not only uh, is it the down and outers that need faith in me, Jesus said, but it's also the up and comers, the, the upper crust, the religious people. Even the religious people need Jesus. And then from that kind of stereotype, if you will, Nicodemus, we moved into chapter four where Dan took us to the woman in Samaria, the Samaritan woman, where you see not this kind of upper crust uh, respected person, but kind of the despised in the culture that day, the Samaritan woman. And he says, I've got living water that uh, you need, that Nicodemus needs, that Nathaniel needs, that the Samaritan woman needs. So those different types of people encountering Jesus. And then today we see a guy who's also um, a Roman or an official in the king's court. We'll get to that in a second here at the end of chapter 4. But John's point and Jesus' point all through these encounters is that there's not just one type of person that needs Jesus. 
that everybody needs Jesus. No matter your station in life, no matter your background, whether you're unrighteous or whether you're incredibly self-righteous, Jesus says, you need me. You need this living water. You need to be born from above. You need to be born again is the word that he used to Nicodemus. Now, as we kind of are where we live today and the time that we live today, as we kind of try to press upon neighbors, friends, family, that Jesus is the answer, Jesus is the Savior, uh, we're met often with objections. And some of those objections people have right from the get-go that just stop the conversation and say, well, I, 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 would, I could never believe in a God who blank, fill in the blank. Just if, if that's what you're saying God would say, if that's what God would teach, then just from the front, I could never believe in a God who blank. You fill in the objection, whether it's about the exclusivity of Jesus or hell or sexuality or whatever topic you think of. When someone just immediately puts up that objection, they are kind of stopping the conversation and saying, uh, I'm not really going to give that a chance. It's kind of a conversation stopper. What I think we need to encourage ourselves as well as our friends to do is to say, if you really want to meet God as he is, you kind of have to come to God on his terms. You can't just immediately stop the conversation. Because if you outright reject a certain thing about Jesus, then what you're really saying is, I'm a Lord of what Jesus can be like of what truth can be, of what God can be like. And we see kind of an example of that this morning in the story that we're going to look at because this guy, uh, he comes to Jesus, and Jesus, from the get-go, kind of puts a warning in front of him, kind of confronts him and some of the other Galileans together and says, no, you need to think like this. And so the lesson here is when we come to Jesus, we don't come, when we come to the true Jesus, we don't come to Jesus on our own terms. If we really want to meet God as he truly is, we have to God, let God be God and then submit ourselves to what that God is truly like. Are you following me? But if we stop the conversation right at the get-go, hey, I, I'm not going to accept this Jesus if he's like this, then you've just kind of said, I will stand in judgment over Jesus rather than letting God, Jesus, stand in judgment over me. You follow me? That's our temptation to make God fit in kind of our paradigm, in our box. We want a Jesus that is nice, so to speak, to us or his preferences fit nicely, coincidentally, with my preferences. But as we encounter the true Jesus, we see we don't get that choice. We have to conform ourselves, we have to conform our faith to Jesus, to Jesus as he presents himself. I started this series by showing you this book that I found years ago called Meet Jesus. Really nice looking Jesus. You look, you, you, what? Okay, Deanna says the third person in the group air supply i don't know i've listened to some air supply perhaps we can't picture their faces right now but this jesus looks strangely similar to the era in which this book was published the 1970s 
the wavy hair, the square jaw, the smile that says, I like you. But we don't get to make Jesus in our image. We get to come to Jesus as he is and conform ourselves, conform our opinions to what Jesus truly says. So join me in John chapter 4, where we meet this desperate man who is confronted with Jesus in a desperate time. So chapter 4, beginning of verse 43, read along with me uh, if you like. After the, two, after the two days, and those are the two days we talked about a little bit last week where he stayed with the Samaritans. After the two days, he departed for Galilee. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast. For they too had gone to the feast. Verse 46, for he came again to Cana in Galilee where he had made the water wine. Now, we skipped that story in chapter 2, but that's relevant to where he is now. So he came again to Canaan and Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. His son was at the point of death. Verse 48. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. And he himself believed in all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. The word of the Lord. So we see as Jesus comes to meet this new guy that this official he's called, some of your translations might say uh, the king's official, and it could be translated actually the king's man, but this official uh, has some position with Herod the Tetrarch, Herod Antipas, uh, who's not actually a king, but he's serving under the Roman emperor as kind of in this geographical uh, authority that he has. So this guy is some type of an official or king's man. And it's interesting that as uh, the Samaritan woman comes, uh, she really has no position. She has no power. She's despised. Nicodemus had some influence, had some position. But here again, at the end of chapter 4, we get this guy who he has, he's the king's man. He has some position He has some power. He probably has some wealth, uh, certainly some connections with his position. But as he comes to Jesus, all that, position, power, influence, wealth, all that in this situation that he finds himself in is utterly insufficient. Doesn't matter how much money you have or what your connections are when your son lay sick in the hospital, about to die. You can have all the influence in the world, but if something doesn't happen miraculously, 
you're at the mercy of God. And that's where this guy finds himself. He had apparently heard about Jesus, and so he he hears what Jesus had done, these signs he had done, what Jesus had accomplished, miracles he had done in Jerusalem, and as some of the Galileans who were in Jerusalem for the Passover feast we read about in chapter 2, as they make their way back to home, to Galilee, this guy, in this desperate situation, has heard enough about Jesus to say, I've run out of options. And maybe, perhaps, Jesus can do for me what nobody else can. And so he goes in hopes, but his hope is desperation. Look again at verse 48 and 49, uh, verse 49 and 50, excuse me. The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. He's at the end of his rope. And the first time he asked in verse 46 or 47... Jesus responds first by saying, he he gives this rebuke that we'll talk about in a minute. And the official hears the rebuke, but nevertheless, he doesn't argue with Jesus' rebuke. He doesn't defend himself. He just desperately says in verse 49, sir, come down before my child dies. Come and help. It's a desperate cry. As I was studying this, uh, this week and previously, I, I realized that it, it stands in contrast, his cry here in verse 49 stands in contrast to a cry that we'll hear next week when we read chapter 5, verse 7, where this guy is a paralytic, and instead of desperation, the guy in chapter 5 kind of gives an excuse. The official says, sir, come down before my child dies. The paralytic in chapter 5 says, makes an excuse. He says, sir, I have no one to help me out. One is an excuse, one is a desperate plea, a desperate cry for Jesus' help. And where John wants these things, he, see, he puts these things next to each other in the flow of the story for us to see the contrast. Jesus, I've got no other options. That is the nature of genuine faith. Not Jesus, I've got some trust in the doctors, but I'm coming to you as kind of a, a, a little bit of extra boost, a little vitamin, if you will. The nature of true faith is not just open handedness, but it's empty handedness that says, Jesus, I've, I've got nothing. I've got no connections. I've not got no goodness. I've, I've got no sufficiency in myself except to cry out for your help. That's the nature of true, genuine faith that's at the end of its rope, that it's desperate. If you're here this morning and you're in a place of desperation, guess what? You're in good company and Jesus loves that. Jesus loves when people come not only empty-handed, not only open-handed, excuse me, but empty-handed saying, I've got nothing As I've said in weeks past, when we come to Jesus, all we bring is nothing. All we bring is need. Nothing in ourselves, just desperate trust, desperate hope in what Jesus can do. We've we've had a tough season at Centennial Church in the last weeks and the last months. By my count, we've had four deaths 
among our family. One in our very own family, Bob Andrews in April. But deaths of parents, deaths of siblings, deaths of parents. Um, We've been in some difficult times, not only deaths, but also cancer, scares, stroke scares, rare diseases, um, surgeries, difficult times. And faith, true faith, is that kind of desperate, empty-handed faith that we see in this official here. He's got no other options. And it's in those places um, of desperation where our faith really can grow, can really be refined. Tim Keller says that faith grows pure in the same place that gold grows pure in the furnace. Our faith is perfected, our faith is grown, our faith grows pure in the furnace of suffering, in the cauldron of trial. I ran across these words from Andrew Murray this week related to suffering. He writes this, he says, By suffering, the Father would lead us to enter more deeply into the love of Christ, Our hearts are continually prone to wander from Him. Prosperity and enjoyment all too easily satisfy us, dull our spiritual perception, and unfit us for the full communion with Himself. It is an unspeakable mercy that the Father comes with His chastisement, makes the world around us all dark and unattractive, leads us to feel more deeply our sinfulness, and for a time lose our joy in what was becoming so dangerous. He does it in hope that when we have found our rest in Christ in time of trouble, we shall learn to choose abiding in Him as our only portion. And when the affliction is removed, have so grown more firmly into Him that in prosperity He still shall be our only joy. Desperate, out of options, totally, desperately dependent upon Jesus. That is the nature of true faith. This man comes and he's, he's desperate. And he hears, he gets this wonderful promise, this wonderful word from Jesus, verses 50 and 51. Jesus said to him, go, your son will, lead, your son will live. Now, what's interesting about this is The man comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, come. He wants Jesus to come with him back to Cana. But Jesus decides not to do that. Instead of going with the man, the man says, come. And Jesus says, what? He says, go. I'm not going to go with you. Go back to Cana. And this was a a test that Jesus gave the man. And it's also teaching us something about Jesus' power that he doesn't, this miracle worker, unlike other miracle workers of the Old Testament and the times of Jesus, didn't even have to be present with someone sick to be able to do a healing. All he had to do was command it, and the son would be healed. So he comes and says, Jesus, come with me. And Jesus says, go. Upon my word, 
your son will live. It shows us that there is this connection, there is this intricate connection between Jesus' word and Jesus' works, that they're tied together. Jesus heals by his word. In fact, if you remember the beginning of John's gospel, back in the very first chapter, he says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, and all things were created through the word, by him. All things were created. The word created everything. Jesus created everything. You remember back in Genesis 1, John 1 is supposed to hearken back to Genesis 1, where all of creation was created, how? By the word, by the spoken word of God. We find out in the New Testament that that word was the very person, Jesus, bringing things into creation and now putting things back right in a disordered, broken creation, all by Jesus' word. There's this intricate connection between the word of Jesus and the deeds of Jesus. So he says, go, your son will live. Sometimes we hear it said, uh, seeing is believing, right? Right? Not so, according to this story. Not so, according to the scriptures. That you don't have to see to believe. You take God. Faith is taking Jesus at his word and believing his word, even before you see, right? We're going to get that warning about signs here in just a second. But seeing is not believing. Believing is taking Jesus at his word. And so the man... Here's Jesus say this, go, your son will live. And a lot of commentators say he was so confident in Jesus that uh, if you look at the time stamp on it, it doesn't seem that he even leaves until the next day because he's going to ask his servants, when did this happen? And they're going to say yesterday. So a lot of commentators say he stayed the night right there in Capernaum and he began this 16 to 20 mile journey uh, back to Cana the next morning and he meets these guys on the way. But he goes, and it's the next verse, uh, or in verse 50, it says, The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. Verse 51, as he was going, he gets the word confirmed from his servants that meet him along the path. Your son is recovering. He says, when was that? And then he's able to say, it was the word of Jesus. So this desperate man clings before he even sees the proof, before he even sees the sign or the miracle. He trusts Jesus. And then later, in verse 50, after he gets there, after he, he sees with his eyes, verse 53, it says, and he himself believed and all his household. Wait a second, I thought he believed up there. Well, he then confirms his belief. He, he takes Jesus at his word and then he goes home and he celebrates with his son who's, who's alive, who is recovering, and then he, his, his faith is confirmed. He believes again. He believes deeper and not just him, but all of his household. And so he believes and it believes after Jesus gives this rebuke, this caution in verse 48. Let's talk about the caution here. The caution about signs. He comes and he says, my son's at the point of death. And then Jesus gives this rebuke. This is where I say we got to let Jesus be Jesus. We got to let God be God. Sometimes he offends us. Sometimes he gets in our kitchen, so to speak, and says things that cause us to re-examine our thinking and re-examine our faith. And it looks Pretty harsh in verse 48. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. 
And the plural here in the Greek is, is not just singular, unless you, official, but it's actually you all. Or in Texas, it's y'all. So Jesus is saying, y'all, unless y'all, you and your friends, unless y'all see signs and wonders, you will not believe. And Jesus here is giving this caution about relying on, about seeking, about demanding signs in order to believe, in order to see to believe. Now, are signs bad things? Absolutely not. In fact, John is so clear, uh, he tells us the reason he's writing his gospel. This is chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. I think we have this on a slide. The, the purpose of John's writing this gospel, it says, uh, let's read it. Now, Jesus did many other signs, okay, there's that word, in the presence of, his, of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. What's the purpose for John's gospel? That you would see these signs that Jesus does and then you, that you would believe. Jesus gives signs to buttress faith to encourage faith. The signs and wonders are good, but the signs and wonders are to, to get us to the point of believing in Jesus and then having life in his name. But here, Jesus cautions this official and these Galileans, don't be demanding, don't be depending upon signs and wonders. And this is a theme throughout Jesus' ministry. He often cautions against this idea of demanding signs. So here, I'm just going to blaze through some of these because they're so prevalent. Matthew 16, verse 4, Jesus says this, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. What is that? Three days and Jesus will be resurrected. That's the sign in John's gospel, these are all coming from John now, flipping back to John chapter 2. He did this miracle in Cana where he turns water to wine. Wouldn't you like to be at that party? He turns water to wine in verse 11 and 12 says this, the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him after this first sign. But the end, toward the end of chapter 2, verses 23 through 25, again, another uh, picture of people uh, entrusting themselves to this sign. But when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing, okay? Initial kind of uh, sporadic faith because of the signs. But verse 24, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. And needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. What is he saying? He's saying, I know some people believe in the signs, but they believe only because of the signs, rather than believing in me, in my person. And then Nicodemus, when Nicodemus, chapter 3, comes to Jesus, he says this, This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are the teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs unless God is with him. He's seeing the signs. On in chapter 6 of John's gospel, a large crowd was following him. Why? Because they saw the signs he was doing on the sick. Verse 14, when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. 
Verse 30, they, the crowd, said to him, what sign do you do that we may see and believe? What work do you perform? So all through John's gospel and all throughout Jesus' teaching, you have this idea that people are, that he is giving signs, but he is cautioning people against relying upon and demanding the signs, right? So the Apostle Paul will, will warn us like this, 1 Corinthians 1, chapter 22 and 23, for Jews demand signs, demand And Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. Jews demand signs. Greeks demand or seek wisdom. Signs and wonders are good things. They are given in in that day and even in ours to buttress faith, but not to be the foundation of our faith. In fact, not to get too much on a rabbit trail, but 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul is going to write about the end times and he's going to write about this one called the Antichrist. You're interested in this, right? People go nuts about teaching about the Antichrist. But 2 Thessalonians, Paul warns us about the Antichrist coming. Guess what? He's going to do some pretty neat tricks. He's going to be, do some pretty cool stuff. Listen to Paul's warning here. Verses 9 and 10. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders. Underline the word false. What's Paul saying? He's saying when the Antichrist come, the, comes, which is the activity of Satan, how's he going to deceive people? Not, not by truth, by false ideas and he's also going to deceive people how with power and with false signs and wonders just because you see power just because you may see a sign and a wonder doesn't mean it's a sign of god it could be a sign of the deceiver and that's why jesus is constantly cautioning cautioning to not demand of signs. Again, let me be clear. Signs are good. I love signs. I pray that God would give more signs and wonders. But we can't base our faith, we can't base our teaching upon signs and wonders and personal experience. As this royal official shows us, His faith was rooted in belief in the word of Jesus, in the word of Jesus. So as we seek to be a people of theological balance, okay, we don't say signs are everything and we're going to look for signs and we're going to demand signs, okay, that's one error, but neither do we say that God never does signs and wonders, that they're bad, that they could never happen. So there's a caution to demanding and there's a caution to ignoring or not welcoming signs and wonders. Do you see it? Do you get it? Let me say it like this. There's a whole, there's a whole other sermon here, okay? Uh, but I couldn't leave this out, okay? And I don't have it on a slide but if you're interested, 
write this down, okay? Signs and wonders, three things that signs and wonders accomplish, all right? This is not on the slide, but I had to throw this in here. Signs and wonders authenticate the king, that's number one. Signs and wonders demonstrate the compassion of the king, King Jesus. Signs and wonders authenticate the king, signs and wonders demonstrate the compassion of the king, and thirdly, signs and wonders preview his kingdom. They give you a taste test of the kingdom that is to come, okay, real quickly here. They authenticate the king. And that's what a lot of people who defend the Christian faith, they look at these miracles and say they may not happen today, but they're given to us. And you look at this in Acts, you'll find this language that they authenticate or they confirm the teaching of the apostles, the miracles, the signs and wonders, authenticate the king. Okay, a lot of us think about signs and wonders that way, and that's legit. They do, but that's not all they do. Okay, they also demonstrate the compassion of the king. Why does Jesus heal people? Why does Jesus raise this man's son to life? Why does he heal him? Because that's the nature of King Jesus. He he does it in compassion. He does it because of his great love for us and his great love for hurting broken people. Now, point number two is what even secularists or people that are non-Christians say about the teaching of Jesus. We love Jesus. Why? Because he's compassionate because he's nice, because he's, 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 a, he's a helpful humanitarian. That's true. But it's not just that he's compassionate. It also authenticates the fact that he's the king of kings and lord of lords. He's the son of God, not just a good humanitarian philanthropist. The signs and wonders authenticate the king. They demonstrate the compassion of the king. And third, and this is one I think we forget most of all, is that they preview the kingdom that is to come. They preview. They're a prequel, right? Before you see the movie, you see the prequel. You see what's going to happen, right? And every time Jesus does a miracle or a sign or a wonder, it's a prequel. It's a preview of the kingdom that he's bringing. And what is that kingdom like? It's a kingdom where little boys don't get sick anymore. It's a kingdom where there's no more blind people. It's a kingdom where the dead are raised back to life where no one gets a skin disease like leprosy or whatever. Every sign and every miracle that Jesus is doing is attesting to the nature of the kingdom that is coming, that when his kingdom comes, everything's going to be put back right. Praise the Lord. Yes, amen. Praise the Lord. So what we see Jesus doing here is giving us a picture of the kingdom that is to come, where everything is put back in its place. Broken things are made whole again. Death is no more, but life is there. Healing is the norm. All the parts work right. There's no cracks. There's no aches. There's no glasses. There's no wheelchairs. There's no death or mourning or pain. Signs and wonders authenticate, demonstrate, and preview. Thank God for signs and wonders. Holy Spirit, move anew. Do your miraculous work. He's doing it around the world. You don't have to ask too many people that have traveled to say that that God's power, the Spirit of God, is still at work doing signs and wonders. I believe it with all my heart. And I also believe with all my heart that we can be deceived. 
and to put our faith absolutely in experiences or demand signs and wonders is against the caution of Jesus right here in this very passage. Amen? I couldn't help but think about this passage. I couldn't help but think about this message yesterday afternoon as my family and I were at this huge neighborhood blowout at our neighborhood community center and pool to mark the beginning of summer, right? And we had actually forgotten there was going to be a party. We were just going to go and kind of quietly enjoy the neighborhood pool to ourselves. Not, not so. But we get there and there are food trucks and there is a DJ that will not stop And there is a cash cube, and they are giving away $100 gift certificates, Visa gift cards. Don't you want to live in my neighborhood? Yeah. You can't handle it. Um, Why did I say that? I don't know. But we go, and and there's the DJ, and there's the music, and he's playing MC Hammer, and Cool and the Gang, and Guns N' Roses, and the Beach Boys, and all this stuff. And there's food, and there's free snow cones, and it's an attraction, and there's noise, and everyone's having a good time. And our neighborhood, HOA, they do these things so neighbors can connect, right? So that we can sit down and get to know our neighbors, and have a good time together, and enjoy one another, and, and have fun. But... I'm just there for the free snow cones. I'm just there hoping that I win one of the raffles, the $100 gift card, right? Quite frankly, I just want to be alone. I don't really want to connect with my neighbors right now. But what am I there for? I'm there for the tricks. I'm there for the treats. I'm there for the gimme, 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 right? Jesus is not a huckster. Jesus is not a dog and pony show. Jesus is not a miracle worker trying to wow us and be America's got talent. Jesus has got talent. Are you impressed? Will you worship him? Will you will you tip him? Jesus is not here to satisfy our titillations and 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 satisfy our wants and needs. He's he's telling this guy This Roman official, as he's telling us, will you believe in me apart from the miraculous? He's asking you and me, are you here for the sign or are you here for me? Do you just want my gifts or do you want me the giver? Do you just want the goods Or do you want the Messiah? And I'm asking that of myself too. Do we want Jesus for how he supplements our life, how he makes our life comfortable? Or do we want Jesus because we love Jesus? And as the woman from Samaria said, he is the savior of the world. Signs are good. Jesus is better. Do you want to see the sign? Or do you want to see the one that the sign points to? Let us seek Jesus. Desperately. Passionately. Because there's no one else. 
There is no other thing. There is no other living water than Jesus. Do you want him? Are you seeking him? Or are you just kind of using him as an appendage and a little vitamin to make life better? Jesus says, here I am. You either believe in me or you believe in a figment of your imagination about who I am. Believe in me. I want to end this morning by giving you just a moment to read a prayer from a guy named Ken Geyer. I want you to just read this silently to yourself for just a minute and then I will close us in prayer, okay? Take a moment and read this. Pray with me. Father, help us. Help us to hunger and thirst for righteousness, to seek first you and your kingdom, not just your stuff not just the help we desperately need, but to seek after you. Help us to not come to you as a vending machine or our personal cosmic barista to whip up for something, us for something that we prefer. God, help us to come to you as the King of kings and the Lord of the Lord's one who truly is not the one we dream up in our minds. And we confess, Father, that the comforts of this world so often insulate us from the reality of how much we need you. Help us see that the hard mercies of adversity are not stones thrown to hurt us, but stones that serve to get our attention to tap on the window of our comfortable estate and remind us that this is not our home. And thank God that this is not our home, but that Jesus has come and he is coming again and we will be home. I want to invite you, especially this morning, if you are in desperation, to come to one of the prayer stations at the front or the back and let us carry burdens with you. Let us pray with you for whatever you might be desperate about, for whatever ailment you have, for whatever sickness you have. Let us pray with you. There's not a person in this room 
that doesn't have a need. And there's not a thing in this world that Jesus says, don't come to me with that. So I want to encourage you as we sing to reflect, to pray, to come to the forward, to come forward or go to the back and ask for prayer. Jesus, we love you. We need you. We worship you and you alone. It's in your beautiful name we pray. Amen.